1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we finish this last section of chapter 11. The title this morning is Conduct and Institution of the Lord's Supper. When Paul brought up the topic of public worship for men and women, last time we were together, last Sunday, he praised the Corinthians for following the the Christian teachings that he had passed on to them. But now he doesn't have praise for them. Look at verse 17 as Paul begins to speak. He says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Paul made it clear that these instructions that he was about to give them wasn't just his personal advice. It wasn't just a suggestion. It was an apostolic instruction that his readers were commanded to accept and to follow. It's like an order that's given by a military commander and then passed along the line by his subordinates. It would have been better, a lot better, if these Corinthians never had a love feast and never to have observed the Lord's communion than to have abused it as badly as they did. Paul says, you guys came together not for the better, but for the worse. Instead of these love feasts being times of loving fellowship and spiritual growth, they turned into selfish indulgence, embarrassing the poor brethren, disrespecting the Lord's sacrificial death, and scandalizing the church in front of the unbelievers that were around them. In other words, they misrepresented their observance of the Lord's Supper, the table of communion. Let's look at verses 18 through 22. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Back in chapter 1, Paul had talked about some of the divisions in the church. Some were saying, well, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, you know. But Paul was saying that these divisions that they had in the church, they were a sign of carnality, not spirituality, not spiritual growth. They were signs of not being spiritually mature, but a sign of carnality. And whenever a person wants to argue over certain doctrines or doctrinal issues, especially when they're not essentials of the faith in Jesus Christ, and they want to create a division and argument, that's just a sign of carnality. Carnality. It's a sign of a lack of spiritual maturity. So whenever you hear people getting on these subjects and trying to run somebody else down because they won't agree with that particular form of doctrine that they believe in, just know that they're creating divisions. And that's a sign of carnality. They need to grow up spiritually. And, and for example, let's use a, a, a subject that a lot of people argue about, the rapture of the church. You know, there's three positions. There's uh, pre-trib, there's mid-trib, and there's post-trib. 
Some believe the tribulation is going to happen before, I'm sorry, the rapture is going to come before we begin any tribulation. Some believe it's going to happen uh, in the middle of the tribulation period. Some think the rapture is going to take place after the great tribulation. We don't know. And it's not an essential of the faith. That is, whether you believe it's, it's pre, mid, or post, it's not a foundational truth. It has nothing to do with salvation. Okay, we need to learn how to disagree agreeably on whatever it is. Okay, the gifts. This is another, the spiritual gifts. It's not an essential of salvation. If I believe in them or don't believe, doesn't, it's not going to have anything to do with my salvation. But we need to be able to talk about these things and, and discuss them without splitting up, without getting angry, without bad-mouthing the, the person next to me. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Paul said here, again, in, in these verses in the New Living Translation, he says, now, when I mention this next issue, I can't praise you because it sounds like you're doing more harm than good when you get together. The word church in verse 18, it's, it, it's speaking of the congregation. It's not talking about the building. Paul is talking about the church, which you are. This building is not the church. You are the church. In the New Testament, the word church is never used to mean a building or a meeting place, but always speaks of the believers. And it seems that wherever and whenever the Corinthian Christians got together, all they did was argue. The divisive spirit that we saw in chapter 1 was carried over in, even into the Lord's Supper, the communion table. It seems that they couldn't agree on anything, nor were they looking to serve each other. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, when the church was first born, the early church, the perfect model of the church. Listen to what it says there. All the believers continued together in close fellowship, and they shared their belongings with one another. The total opposite was happening here in the Corinthian church. Here in Corinth, instead of sharing together in fellowship sharing their belongings with one another, and in worship, they spent their time selfishly serving themselves and arguing. And Paul said, to some extent, I believe it. Look at verse 19. He says, For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Paul knew that division couldn't be totally avoided. And where, wherever you have people, there's going to be difficulties. He says, you know, he says he knew there couldn't be, uh, a, a division couldn't be totally avoided until the Lord comes back. So there will always be tares among the wheat, and there will always be disobedient believers as well. Paul said, there must, notice, there must be divisions among you. Why? So that those who are right will be recognized. You see... He's saying it's necessary that there be divisions among you because that will show who the right believers are. It'll separate the tares from the wheat. The word must be in verse 19 means it is necessary or it must be. It means necessity or compulsion of any kind. The word must be is often used in the New Testament to represent divine necessity. Jesus used the term must be on many occasions in relation to certain spiritually predicted and divinely appointed events like his crucifixion and resurrection. He said it must be because it was an essential of salvation. 
the best that can be said of the divisions is that they have to exist in order to make it clear who the genuine believers are among you, those who are approved. The worldliness and fleshly, uh, the, the worldliness and fleshly disobedience of those who cause the divisions would be found out. And it would highlight the love, harmony, and spirituality of those who are approved by God. That is, those who have passed the test of God. The word approved here was used of precious metals tested in fire and proved to be pure. Church division, ungodly and sinful as it is, is used by the Lord. He uses it to prove who are his worthy and faithful saints. So in the center of all of this bickering and divisiveness, they're separated out like pure gold from the dross. The dross and the gold are separated. Each, each uh, evil helps to show who the good ones are. Trouble in the church creates a, a situation where true spiritual strength, wisdom, and leadership can be seen. In every congregation, God has approved people. God has his approved people. That is, those that he trusts with his work of the church. And those who are approved, the, the approved ones, they are especially made obvious in adversity and hardship. That's when you see those who are approved by God, when there's adversity and hardship. And it's only those who are tried, who are tested and pass. These believers are the ones that, should, that the church should be entrusted with. These leaders uh, who have been tried and, and tested... And approved are the ones, these leaders are the ones who the trust should, the church should be entrusted to. A big cause of pastors and missionaries and other Christian leaders leaving the ministry or being unproductive is that they're not approved by God. They're not totally qualified spiritually in the first place to do the work of the Lord. But blessed is the man or woman who holds up under trial, who hold up when things get tough. Because he or she will be a faithful companion and they won't quit. They won't take off when things get tough. But they'll stand and they'll stand strong with strong determination all the way to the end. Or when God brings you together with a difficult leader, try to learn all you can about yourself and about God. Many times, you know, when, when we serve with a difficult leader, we start bad-mouthing the leader. Now, there may be some things that that you know are wrong but you know some ministry doesn't change a lot of the times we have to you know leaders come and go we need to learn how to deal with certain kinds of people so again when god puts you in that difficult situation or with a difficult leader try to learn about yourself try to learn about god through that difficult time because there may be some very important lessons that god's trying to teach you when he places you in those conditions, in those situations. Think about King David, or before he was king. David probably had the hardest person anybody ever had to work with, King Saul. King Saul tried over and over again to kill David. You know, he demoted David. He was, he was constantly pursuing David. He pursued David for about 10 to 12 years, trying to do away with him. And, 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 you know, and, and David endured. David had chances to get rid of David, to get rid of that problem in his life. But he said, no, this is God's doing. I'm going to let God handle King Saul. 
But you see, David learned a lot about being, being a, a man, about being a king and solving problems. God used that difficult time in David's life in order to teach him how to be a king, how to deal with bad people. Hard times and hard people, those are the ones that reveal our character. Hard times and hard people refine our characters if we're looking at ourselves and we're looking to God. Hard times and hard people reveals what's in my heart. We're always looking at the other person's heart. The, the, the hardness and, and the meanness in them or whatever the, the, the problem might be. But hard times, troubling times, they're growing times. John Calvin said this, hard times should never make us hardened people and adversity should never make us abrasive. And there's a lot of scripture to support, again, this, this, this attitude that we're to have. In James chapter 1, verse 12, James says this, Blessed is the man or woman who endures temptation, for when he or she has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 2 Timothy 4, 5, Paul said, But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He didn't say fulfill your ministry if you're not having problems. Endure afflictions, work, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry in spite of the afflictions. 2 Timothy 2, 3, Paul said, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, He who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, enduring isn't the means of salvation. Enduring is evidence that you are saved. Enduring to the end. 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul said, if we endure, no, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. You see, divisions aren't just disruptive, they're destructive. At first, those divisions, they show up, they, they help to show who are strong and spiritual leaders. But if you leave them alone, They'll discourage the people and they're not to be tolerated. Paul told Titus in chapter 3, verse 10, If anyone is causing divisions among you, give a first warning and then a second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with that person. For people like that have turned away from the truth. They are sinning and they condemn themselves. But the very fact that a person is contentious and divisive, that person proves their carnality. And that they're unfit to be a part of the Christian fellowship. It is necessary, Paul said, that factions appear. They're necessary. But it's not necessary to tolerate them or allow them to lead, or, or, or lead to a division in the church. We see back in Acts chapter 5, very early in the, new, in, the, in the freshly born church. Very early in the new church. In the model church. The devil God has made his way in. In Ananias and Sapphira, lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God. What did God do? He removed them right away. Ananias and Sapphira removed from the church right away. David, in his administration, he said this in Psalm 101, verse 6. He says, my eyes shall be on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He said in Psalm 101, verses 6 through 8. 
He said, he who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early, and that's the key, early I will destroy all the wicked of the land that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. David made it clear who would serve him in his administration. Those who walk in a perfect way shall serve me. Those who, dis, who, who work deceit, they're not going to dwell within my house. Those who lie, they're not going to continue in my presence. And right away, I will remove them from my administration. That I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Proverbs 25, 5, Solomon said, Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Paul says, David says, you get rid of the problems immediately so that they don't disrupt and destroy your, your church. Verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Where this evil was taking place, this self-indulgence and, and, and these wrongdoings, it was happening at communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. And that gives it a much greater significance. Now, this was a real meal where the church would get together to eat the love feast. And after that, they would have communion. Now, the communion was connected to this love feast in the Corinthian church. But because of what was really taking place, what was happening, it blemished its godly purpose and destroyed its holiness. That is the communion. In the early church, the love feast and communion were usually held together. But because of the abuses, it finally forced the two to be separated in order to protect the holiness and the sacredness of the communion. So the love feast soon disappeared completely. The divisive members, they they had so distorted the congregation that communion became a disgrace and really wasn't communion at all, at least what it was supposed to represent. So Paul said, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. They could honestly say it was, they they couldn't honestly say that it was devoted to the Lord. Neither the meal nor the communion, neither one honored the Lord. They went through the ritual, but not the real meaning of it. They went through the form, but not the substance. He says, you guys may be breaking some bread. You may be passing the cup around and you might be repeating some of the words that Jesus said. But what you're doing has nothing to do with the ordinance that the Lord instituted. He says, Christ isn't in what you do. Verse 21. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What a sad comment. Some poor person would come to the dinner, but he was so poor he couldn't afford to bring anything, and he was starving. And then next to him would be some rich guy with his fatted calf sandwiches and his leeks and garlics and onions and salad, but would share anything with the poor guy. You see, the fellowship was broken. There couldn't be fellowship when this was going on. The poor believers came to, to the supper hoping to share some of the food that the wealthy brought, but they went home hungry. They went home hungry spiritually and physically. Those who brought food and drink, they stuffed themselves. They even got drunk. They made a mockery of the very purpose for being there, 
which was to bring harmony and unity among those who belonged to Jesus Christ as they remembered his sacrifice to make them one in him. And then there was something else. Verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Paul says, hey, if, if, if you're not going to share in true fellowship, stay home and eat. Because what they were doing was ripping the church apart. Some were even getting drunk there during the love feast. So they were in no condition to even, you know, remember the death of Christ at all. You know, it would be fuzzy, it would be hazy, they're drunk. They wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be, that wouldn't be in their right minds. Paul says, what am I supposed to say about these things? You want me to praise you? He says, no way. A Christian's attitude and motives should be pure at all times. But when believers come to the communion table, they're coming to share the bread of his body and the cup of his blood. It is absolutely necessary that they leave, all, leave behind all sin, all bitterness, all prejudice, all pride, and all feelings of superiority. Of all places and times, those attitudes are most out of place at the Lord's Supper, the communion table. They seriously disrespect that holy, beautiful, unifying ordinance of God. Verse 23 through 26. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he betrayed, he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This is the purpose of the Lord's table here in these verses. Paul wasn't there when the, when the Lord's Supper was instituted. He got this as a direct revelation from the Lord. He got it in that night. At that, in that night when all the powers of hell had gathered together to destroy Jesus Christ. Notice the simplicity and the spiritual nature and the wisdom of this supper. Now, notice when he had given thanks, he gave thanks that night, it says. That night. Like I said, when all hell gathered together to to, to plan to destroy him. He gathered that night knowing, knowing that he was going to the cross. He gave thanks that night knowing he was going to the cross and all hell was waiting for him. And he gave thanks. He thanked God. Then, it says here, he broke it. It being the bread. He gave thanks and he broke the bread. The bread symbolizing the bottom of our, the body of our Lord. Because, the, again, his body was ripped apart by the scourging. By all that he went through upon that cross. And, and when that loaf of bread is torn, you know, from each loaf, the piece is torn from the loaf. You see, it's, it's not a smooth cut. The, 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 the jagged pieces you know, represent the the jagged, broken body of the Lord, symbolizing his broken body. Broken for who does it say there? For for you. For you. You know, right there somewhere is squeeze in your name. Broken 
for Joe, broken for Kathy, broken. Put your name in there. Make it so personal when you read it that you focus on yourself. Two of the most important words in the whole Bible for you. Jesus gave his body for you. He gave his whole earthly life for you. For us who believe in him. He became a man for you. He gave the gospel for you. He suffered for you. He died for you. He resurrected for you. Our gracious, loving, generous, merciful God became a man, not for himself, but for you. Whether a person wants to receive the benefit of his sacrifice, that's their choice. Jesus won't force that on anybody. But Jesus made the offer. He said, here, I've done this for you. I did it for every person. He, prayed, he paid the price for every person who wants to be freed. Freed from the slavery of sin, the bondage of sin. The bread speaks of his broken body. The cup speaks of the blood of the covenant, the new covenant. Notice what he called, the, no, he called it. He called it the cup. The bread speaks of his body. The cup speaks of the blood of the new covenant. He called it the cup. And the reason I emphasize that, because sometimes, well, and it's also sometimes called the fruit of the, on the vine, but it's never called wine. And maybe in the past, maybe not, but I've heard what, well, you know, shouldn't we have wine for communion? You know, should we have fermented or unfermented wine for the Lord's Supper? Well, we can know that it wasn't wine in the, in the sense that we know wine. It, it was unfermented we can know it was unfermented because this is the Passover. It was the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That meant that there was nothing in the house that was supposed to have leaven. Remember, they were to go in and remove all leaven from the house. Because leaven is a type of sin in the Bible. So, again, if it was the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, do you think that they would have had unleavened bread but leavened grape juice? Wine is leavened grape juice. It's fermented. The whole feast was unleavened. It had to be because it was the Passover feast. But the inter interesting thing is that here Jesus calls it the cup. His body was the, was the bread and the blood was the cup. The cup, that held, the cup that held his blood. He was born to die. He was born to shed his blood. Again and again, the apostles remind us that we have forgiveness of sin because of the blood. That he has given mercy to us because of his blood. You know, we, we, we don't have to sneak in the back door while nobody's looking to the kingdom of God. The Lord brings us through the front door as sons and daughters because of the penalty of sin that he paid for. He met the demands of a holy God. And we can't forget that. When in this day... There's a lot of thinking that, 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 you know, God shuts his eyes at our sin. He doesn't really care. He doesn't really look. You know, he doesn't, he's not going to do anything about it. But he has done something about it at the cross. This is the cup. It holds the blood of the new covenant. How long do we do this? Verse 26 says, notice, till he comes. Till he comes. We, we, when we observe the Lord's Supper, remember that table looks back, it looks to the present, and it looks to the future. It looks back. It's a reminder. Jesus says twice here, do this in remembrance of me. 
This takes us back, looking back over 2,000 years to his death on the cross. And he says, don't forget that. It's important. And this table is, 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 is a, a symbol of communion. It speaks of relationship. It speaks of the present. The fact today that there is a living Christ. And then it speaks of commitment. It looks to the future. He's coming again. This table is temporary because one day we will sit with him forever. But we are to do it until he comes. It speaks of an absent Lord that is a physical presence like he was here around in his earthly ministry. But it's not absence, you know, in the sense. No, he's, he's, he's with us always. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. It's, but it's speaking of his physical presence, who's coming back one day and he will be with us forever. So it looks to the future. Think of it. Jesus took these two simple elements, bread and juice, which spoils easily. The weakest things in the world, some of the weakest things in the world. And he made a monument out of them. Not out of marble, not out of bronze, silver, or gold. Like Peter said, we're not saved with, with corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus. Something you couldn't put a price on. The bread and the juice, it speaks of Jesus. And it tells me that I'm responsible for his death. Verses 27 through 34. Therefore, all right, in light of what he just said about the communion table, He says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body or otherwise uh, understanding what this all means of his body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Paul gives another warning here. Because of everything that was involved in the, that's involved in the Lord's Supper, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, you can come to the table, this table that Paul is describing here, this, this, this table of communion. You can come in an unworthy manner, and you can come in an unworthy manner, manner in different ways. It's normal for people to take communion just out of habit we do it once a month some do it more frequent the bible doesn't say how often it just says do it but some people do it weekly and so you know again it's just normal for the people to come to communion but you know because because of habit without involving their minds in their hearts and really understanding what it symbolizes they can go through the motions without thinking of what it means and they can take it lightly rather than seriously, as Paul you know, just described. Some believe even that it, 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 it imparts grace to us, that it, it gives us merit because, oh, well, I took communion, so now I'm, I'm good. And I'm, you know, I, I, I've got, I'm, God's given me grace now because I took communion. 
rather than understanding the sacrifice that it represents. And that, it, it, that, that sacrifice is what can save and keep me. But a lot of times they think, well, I've taken communion, I'm saved, or, or, or just saving, saving uh, a communion saves me by itself. And, and, you know, again, without really understanding what it means. Many come to the table with bitterness or ill will towards another believer or with a sin or sins that they don't want to repent of and just you know, think, well, you know, God's, God's not really going to do anything or he doesn't care, or, you know. But if a believer comes with anything less than the highest thoughts of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and with anything less than total love for his brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, they come in an unworthy manner. Jesus said, be reconciled. Live your gift at the altar if you remember that somebody has something against you. Leave the gift at the altar and go and make things right. Be reconciled. He said, come. He says, to come in an unworthy manner to the Lord's table is to become guilty. Guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus. To come unworthily to communion, it doesn't just dishonor the ceremony. It dishonors the one in whose honor is being celebrated, Jesus Christ. We become guilty of dishonoring his body and his blood that represents his total gracious life and work for us his suffering and his death for us and we become guilty of mocking and treating with disrespect the very person of jesus christ every time we come to the lord's table we should examine ourselves and then eat the bread and then drink the cup before you take communion paul said here notice examine yourself completely And looking honestly, honestly at your heart for anything that shouldn't be there. And then removing it, removing it and all evil. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties or my thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Notice the five personal pronouns. He's asking God to deal with him. We're always asking God to deal with the people around us. They're the problem, Lord. Deal with them. Make them, make them see where they're wrong and make them be right and do right. No, no the psalm said, show me, Lord. Show me. Teach me. Show, show me where I need to change. Show me what I need to do. Pastor Tony texted me something earlier uh, uh, after the first service on this verse of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, and I love it. It was a devotion that he read, and in in a Scandinavian translation of the word search, they use ransack. Ransack. Picture somebody searching for something and somebody ransacking something in in, in a... effort to find it when i see a lot of times the word ransacked used it's like when somebody comes in and robs a home it's a break-in the drawers are pulled out the clothes are strewed all over the place everything is turned upside down looking for something of value and i love that translation ransack lord ransack my heart Turn over every hidden rock and stone and leaf or whatever illustration you might think. Turn over, upset everything. 
Turn it upside down. Bring to light those things that are hidden or forgotten. Ransack my heart, God. And show me those things that I need to deal with. Search our motives toward our attitudes. Search our motives towards towards the Lord. Search our motive towards His Word, towards His people, towards the communion table itself. All of that should come under personal inspection before the Lord, before I come to that table. Then the table becomes a special place for the purifying of the church. That's the basic purpose of the communion. A place for purifying the church. And Paul's warning emphasizes that principle here, to examine yourself. A person who takes communion without coming in the right spirit, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Even if, even if they uh, doesn't, uh, again, drink, because they don't judge the body rightly, the body of Christ. If he doesn't judge the body rightly, the body of Christ, again, being, being you know, torn apart and, and bleeding for our, 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 our salvation, if they don't judge that body right, they're not in the right mind for, for communion. Judgment here has the idea of chastisement. If we don't come right and we have these, these if we come in an unworthy manner, then we'll be judged for those things. It's chastisement. We will be disciplined. And that chastening comes if we don't judge his body rightly for the purpose that it was, went to the cross. That is, if we don't judge the body and the blood that's used in communion, if we don't judge it rightly. To avoid God's judgment, a person has to rightly discern and respond to the holiness of the occasion of the communion supper. The kind of chastening the Lord may use is given in verse 30. Notice verse 30, what happens if we come to the, the table in an unworthy manner. Verse 30 says, For this reason... Yeah, that is, coming to the table in an unworthy manner. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Many sleep. God doesn't eternally condemn those who abuse the Lord's table, but he punishes them. And his punishment might be severe weakness. It could be a, an illness. It could even be death. The word sleep here, like in many other places in the New Testament, is figuratively speaking of the death of believers. God actually put to death many believers in Corinth because they continually despised and corrupted the Lord's Supper. I mean, look look what they did with Ananias and Sapphira early in the book of Acts. He put to death Ananias and Sapphira for lying to him, for lying to the Holy Spirit. He said, you lied to God. And as in, the, as in the Old Testament, these divine deaths, they, weren't, they, they were to be used as an example of what all sinners deserve and might receive. But there's a remedy for unworthiness. Paul said here, if we judge ourselves rightly, we won't be judged. If we examine ourselves and judge ourselves and say, yes, this is messed up in me and I got to change this and I got to repent and I got to make it right, then God won't judge me. This involves recognizing what we are and what we need to do. If we confess our sins, our wrong attitudes and our wrong motives, 1 John 1, 9 says, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. And as already mentioned, if we come unworthily and and we're judged by God, 
We're disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God sends personal chastening to drive offenders back to religious behavior. And he sends death. He sends death to some in the church to encourage those who remain to, to, to stay unholy. Or to encourage, I should say, to, to remain to choose holiness rather than sin. He uses an example. To encourage those uh, who remain to choose holiness rather than sin. Even if the Lord were to strike us dead for respecting his table, it would be discipline to us, not judgment or punishment, to keep us from being condemned. What a thought. Think about that. We're kept from condemnation not only by God's word, but also by divine intervention. God chastens us to keep us from from falling from salvation and will even take our life if need be before that could happen. And saying, Lord, Lord, if you see me that I'm going down the wrong road and I'm not coming back and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, you know, mess up, take me out now. Take me home now. That's what Paul is saying here, that many sleep because they didn't do right. And to, to spare them from condemnation, God, God intervenes and he takes them home. So in closing... Paul closes by warning the Corinthians to get their lives and their attitudes right, to get it together, to totally get rid of their prejudices, their selfishness, and their lack of interest in God's holy ordinance, the communion supper. The fact that he says, hey, when you guys come together to eat, he assumes, he assumes that he supported the idea, you know, that, that he supported the idea of their fellowship meal. But he says, They should wait for one another before they begin to eat of it. If any, he says, if any of you are only coming to satisfy your own physical hunger, he just stay home and eat. Because you you misrepresent the love feast. When they come to the love feast, and especially to the Lord's table, they should come to satisfy their spiritual hunger. There's no point, he says, there's no point in doing this. There's no point in gathering together to eat. He says, actually, he says, you're just gathering together to sin. Don't do that because that's simply coming together for judgment. And then Paul ends the the chapter by saying, notice, he says, he would take care. He said, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So he's saying, you know what? He says, I'll take care of the rest of these things personally when I come to Corinth. And it could be, maybe he's referring to uh, uh, other issues. Maybe issues related to worship or even the Lord's Supper here or both. But he says, we'll take care of those issues at another time. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this wonderful chapter, Lord. And we thank you for just, Lord, showing us in depth, Lord, the meaning of the communion table, Lord. So, Father, help us to remember when we partake of communion. Lord. Help us to remember this section of Scripture, Lord, even to read it over and over again, God, so that, Father, we will examine ourselves, Lord. Father, that we will ransack our hearts, Lord, and look over and under and behind everything in our heart, Lord, to see if there's anything there that is grieving to you, Lord, that's unacceptable to you, Father.
Lord, that we would make it right. Father, we just thank you so much for your love and your grace. Thank you for the choice that you've given us for salvation. You won't force it on anybody, but you've made it an offer to all. Father, we thank you for the offering we'll receive today, Lord. May it bless you. May it honor you. May you be glorified in it, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness and for taking care of us so well, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.